Listener Production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. I've led teams on newspapers, on a magazine, and now in my own business. And in this series, I seek out the experts to understand how you and I can be better leaders. Very few women have made it in the male-dominated world of newspaper editing in Australia. So it's no surprise that Lisa Davies felt a touch of imposter syndrome when she was appointed editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. That feeling was made worse by the fact that she'd never worked at the Canberra Press Gallery, a rite of passage for so many senior journalists. But Lisa quickly proved the doubters wrong. In this episode, Lisa talks about how she handles the stress of putting out a daily newspaper while managing a big team with complex personalities. Lisa, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thanks, Helen. When I was growing up in media and and holding various roles in newspapers, it was always pretty much accepted that women didn't get to run newspapers. Uh, And here we are talking to the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, Uh, But also there's a woman editing The Age as well. Do you think your readers in Melbourne and Sydney know that two women run two of the most influential papers in the country? Um, I hope so, (laughs) and I hope they like it. I genuinely think as a woman you bring a whole different perspective to it. Like I've been surprised at how you really have to think, you know, proactively about ensuring that women are regularly featured on the front page. You know, it's so easy. I mean, this, this afternoon, for example, classic example, we're in news conference and the photos of the Prime Minister's giving a press club, National Press Club address uh, in Canberra. And, you know, so I'm looking for a possible page one photo of, of the Prime Minister or the people gathered and just going through the photos, it's all men in suits. So to actively have to think, you know, where's the, where's the female, where's, where's some really strong women and um, really make sure we're trying to find that balance all the time because I think it's just, well, it's certainly more interesting for readers um, and it represents our society. So um, I, I'm consciously doing it and trying to reinforce with my team the need to do it and I'm sure Gay's doing the same in Melbourne. I have to say that, you know, it is an extraordinary job that you've done uh, to be the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald for as many years. I think it's five. You're going into six. Nearly four. (laughs) Nearly four. uh, Is, you know, an extraordinary achievement and congratulations to you. And usually a woman gets the job at the end of the cycle when media or the business or the company or the organisation has gone through enormous upheaval. And you did actually take over the role when Fairfax was in extreme upheaval. What challenges have you had in transitioning from um, being a part of the newsroom into being a leader? Um, I think there's a couple of answers to that. One is the probably the biggest challenge is working out what kind of a leader you are. I mean, for me, I'm a very, um, I trust my gut a lot. I'm a very reactive I sort of make a decision and I go with it. I'm quite a quick decision maker and I've been told that that's, um, that's something people really like. But having said that, I also sometimes need to stop and think and and check myself and, and make sure that really is, might be the right decision in this absolute moment, but is it a long, you know, are there longer term things I need to consider? Yeah, so so working out what kind of a leader you are, I think is is probably the first thing that I that I not necessarily struggled with, but really wanted to hone to make sure that I 
um, really nailed it because I did, as you said in the question, uh, within three months of taking over the job, had to um, oversight a pretty large redundancy program. was the last time we did that kind of cost-cutting or any kind of cost-cutting at, um, at the Herald, but it was pretty horrific and brutal. So, you know, it, it was really challenging to to balance what I where I could see us being able to provide strength and growth, but also knowing we had to really hit these these targets around numbers. And that was terribly, terribly difficult and stressful. So to get on the other side of that, I really needed to then disconnect my leadership, I suppose, from that really toxic and difficult time. So that whole first year was pretty, was a pretty wild <laughs> experience, um, you know, survived on adrenaline, I think. So yeah, so, and, and I think there is something to be said for, like, I didn't, I've never worked in Canberra, I've always loved politics and, and read it voraciously, but I've never worked in Canberra. Um, I've never been a Herald Transport reporter. That's a bit of a thing. Um, so I don't really have, I'm not typical Herald, you know, I, my background is all in crime and courts coverage. So one of my biggest challenges has been convincing people that I have the credibility to make decisions in an area that I'm not necessarily an expert. And I think for me, I try to really take advice and talk to as many people as possible and be a um, be someone who leads the newsroom with, you know, with great sort of consultation. And that's not always easy when you, when you do like to make decisions quickly and move forward. Um, to take that time is something I've really had to work on as well, I think. This podcast is primarily for young women just starting out in their leadership journey. Um, the sorts of issues that we talk about, the sorts of things you and I never really had a chance to learn um, when we were going through newspapers. How did you adapt to being the, you know, very liked, um, very well-credentialed young leader to them being the one who had to sit people down, had to sit people down and say, we've got to let you go? Like, how did you do that? Um, I think first and foremost in all the relationships and, you know, newsrooms are full of very um, uh, complicated and fascinating individuals and coming into that environment, I start from a point of respecting everyone, whether you're having a conversation with a really senior reporter who's perhaps been a journalist longer than I've been alive um, or, you know, has worked in as an expert in their field for a really long time, my, my starting point is I pay them the respect that they've earned. Even if we are about to embark on a difficult conversation or, you know, some kind of um, some kind of challenge, I, I just always want to make sure that they understand that this is a product of a particular incident or a, um, something that's happened. It's not about them and their broad career. It's a, whatever the pertaining issue is. I guess with redundancies, I didn't have to make anyone redundant. I just had to accept the voluntary applications. And there were a few times that I really had to talk people back. Um, and then there were people that really wanted to go and I really could see a place for them in the Herald that we were we were building. And, you know, it was really, it was really, really hard because once someone has made a decision to put that application in, they really want to go. It had been cycle after cycle, yearly, you know, yearly cuts, yearly redundancy, voluntary redundancy applications. And it was, um, yeah, some people were just ready to stop that cycle of anxiety and, and upset. Yeah, I mean, it's super, it's it's horrible, <laughs> some of those things, but I kind of think I'd rather do them myself and do them with 
kindness and and have those conversations in a respectful way because you know it's their future and I don't want people ever leaving the Herald with bad bad feelings if I if I possibly can avoid it particularly when it's a bit taken out of their hands as well so jumping forward then you've you've gone through that very difficult period in the in the Herald's history and then you've still got to contend with the issue of are these people going to take me seriously as you said your your background was crimes and courts You'd come from the feisty tabloid newspaper across town, <laughs> yep. uh, owned by the Murdochs, uh, which is not almost not always the best CV to turn up the City Morning Herald <laughs> with. So you then have to deal with: Are they going to take me seriously? Would that have almost been a more difficult leadership yeah. challenge? And it's definitely something that I've reflected on quite a bit recently, actually, because I am an outgoing person. I'm, you know, social. I enjoy a laugh and. You know, I do tend to be on the lighter side of the spectrum when it comes to how you present. And I do think that has probably led a lot of people to underestimate me as well, which is not necessarily a bad thing in some ways, but I do find, do felt feel in some examples where some situations where I might have, you know, been a bit quick to be light and, and create a joke or, or, and that's a technique I use to put people at ease as well when I first meet them and, and and engage a conversation. But I do think probably I've done that, done myself a disservice perhaps by not being a bit more guarded going into certain situations. But having said that, I don't think it's been a severe disadvantage or anything. I just do think that me also getting more comfortable in the role and, you know, understanding my own strengths and um, skills and being more secure or feeling more secure, I think, has probably changed that a little bit. And just I've just felt a little bit more able to manage those situations a bit differently. I mean, I'd certainly know in some big political meetings or, you know, when I would f- first go to Canberra quite a lot, definitely felt incredibly out of my depth and just flying totally blind. But I had some wonderful support from our senior reporters down there and, and my bosses and stuff. So I definitely have navigated that quite okay, I think. But yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly been a challenge. I, I don't think there's anything like a, you know, a Canberra meeting to, to be intimidating. Mm. And I spent my 20s in Canberra. Yes. <laughs> so I know what you mean. And so therefore I have all the more respect for you to overcoming something where there's a sort of an intellectual snobbery around whether, you're, whether you get the Canberra scenario or not. And no amount of reading about it can sort of get you there in their eyes. So I'm, I'm, I'm laboring this point because many of our audience find themselves in situations where they feel inferior, where they feel uh, like imposters, like they're never going to have the intellectual grunt. And yet you overcame that. Uh, well, I which still is, probably battle it, actually. Um, I definitely think that imposter syndrome is, is real for, for most women. But the thing I think that I've tried to do is be really honest about not being an expert. Like I I don't mind telling people that, you know, I'm telling it on your podcast or your <laughs> listeners. I've never worked in Cam- the Canberra Press Gallery. I've never been a business reporter full-time, since, you know, since my cadetship. And, you know, I don't necessarily have those insights, but I know what a story is and I know when someone's lying. I know when, you know, there's a yarn there to pursue. So it doesn't necessarily matter that you don't know the intricacies of the policy debate, but you know what is going to interest people. And I think you, you make very good points. It doesn't really matter how complicated an issue is. If you take enough advice, you can usually get to to an answer. Nevertheless, a lot of your contemporaries and a lot of the 
editors of organisations around town are all men. Yep. So you're still unique in this situation. What skills do you think you bring to editing that your competition don't have? I think we probably all have similar skill sets. It's the way we choose to execute the jobs, I think, that are probably a bit differently. I mean, look, for example, you know as well as I do that at News Corp, the it's very much a top-down, instructive way of running a newsroom like the editor is, you know, dictating what what the news agenda is going to be. At Fairfax, when I arrived, or the Herald, when I arrived there, it was much more collegiate and always has been a much nicer, in inverted commas, a, a more sort of pleasant place to work, which sounds really boring um, and not particularly exciting. But it's it was, it, and I was actually telling this story just today. Like I went to a job at Poach from the Daily Telegraph and was appointed crime editor at the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sun Herald had a bigger team than I'd had at News and um, more responsibility and certainly more expectation because, you know, my former colleagues were very cross. But I felt instantly more like I could grow there. Like I just, the environment, I mean, yes, it's still competitive and people still fight each other for stories, but it is just a more, you know, you feel like you're playing on the same team, I suppose, whereas a lot of times... I've previously, in previous workplaces, I felt like you're fighting against each other. So I think I take, I've taken that into the, into the conference room and um, tried to be more collaborative, more, um, you know, ask people what they think should be on page one, and particularly if I can't decide, like <laughs> I'll seek opinions and, you know, really get inside the detail with our digital editor who will certainly have a view on what should be on page on the newspaper because he knows what's being read on the website. You know, we don't really have a clue what people are reading when they pick up a newspaper. I think, you know, in terms of the female perspective, I just do think I feel like we're open to a broader range of stories, topics, ideas. Um, you know, I can't speak for the male editors around the place, but I just generally think that women are a bit broader in their interests. So I hope I have brought a bit of that to the Herald as well and a bit of light and shade. I definitely think through the week we can get so caught up in hard, hard, hard news, constantly politics, um, local government, you know, energy, all those sort of big, heavy topics, just often looking for the, where's the, where's the light relief now? <laughs> I want to talk about the, about the challenges of managing complex personalities, again, with a view to an audience that's, you know, managing lots of different, um, in much different organisations and situations, but, but a newsroom offers very complex personalities. How have you changed and managed the sort of the social shift that we've gone through around things like mental health issues and alcohol? I think it's really interesting. When I was a young reporter, both before I went to the telly and, and then when I was there, yeah, we were out every night. You know, that's how we build contacts. That's how we de-stressed, having covered awful crime, murders and, and awful court cases and whatever stresses of the job, like we'd be at the pub. Interestingly, our most recent set of cadets, I was amazed at how infrequently they did that. And in fact, at one stage even, not that I was encouraging um, heavy drinking, but I did try to encourage them to go to the pub one afternoon after, after a particularly crazy couple of days uh, or a week or something. You know, people are much healthier now. I didn't take up running until my 30s because I was too busy. <laughs> like, when would I fit that in in between, you know, being at court at 9am and then going to the pub after work and getting up and doing it all again the next day. So I do think society has shifted quite a lot in that way. And some of the very traditional 
places where journos used to go to meet contacts and hang out with like police and lawyers and stuff. I don't think anyone really does does that anymore to the extent that um, the extent that we all used to. And I think that's probably a good thing. For example, I know that one of our gossip columnists, she will never go for a drink with a contact. She will have coffees and breakfasts and um, lunches, but she won't drink just because she thinks it really changes the nature of their conversation. They want to be right. Um, it's a difficult field to navigate because you know, you could take what someone says about something and write it up in a, with a certain slant, but it's not quite the meaning they intended. And when alcohol is involved, those meanings do change. What about the mental health issues that come with reporters that have gone through, as you you did crime and courts, but you're in charge of many reporters who have gone into war zones. But then there's just the everyday burden and stress of putting a story together or even a newspaper together. What have you learnt about that and managing that in your time? So the absence of that pub culture or that, you know, heading to the pub after work thing, particularly last year actually through COVID, I think has made us much more proactive about seeking people out, talking to them one-on-one, making those phone calls, checking in with people. Despite the fact that I could post on our sort of internal work messaging system once a week the numbers to call if you, you know, want to have a chat with someone anonymously, like the service that we provide for all our staff, unless someone really wants that help or really feels like they should get it, they're not going to do it proactively, I think. A lot of times people, I've, I've had conversations with staff where I've said, you know, you know, this is available. I would really think it sounds like a good idea. It doesn't matter whether you talk to them once or 20 times. It doesn't seem to compute because we're so focused on the next story and the next story and getting a news break. So I, I've really tried to, um, and after the bushfires actually, we had I think one of the most useful meetings was an all-in debrief, sort of a whole of newsroom really. Um, got as many people there as we possibly could. I asked Nick Moyer, who's our chief photographer, and he's covered fires for 20 years. He, I mean, he broke down. He was really honest about what happened and how he felt and his experiences and how he deals with that level of trauma. And I think for the younger reporters particularly, but everyone, me included, and I've known Nick for, oh, yeah, 15 years, I, I think it was really powerful to see that vulnerability. And that's what I have sort of think we, we can all learn about being vulnerable, talking about it. I mean, we all know that it is the best way to overcome you know, issues and and those real challenges is by sharing your burden and and sharing it with someone. And I've tried to sort of appoint a couple of people as sort of almost like newsroom um, newsroom monitors or, you know, just people who are around a lot, are very friendly, non-confrontational and just, just to say, hey, how are you going? And if they see something, let me know. You know, if you see someone looking really upset in the, you know, in the bathrooms or in the kitchen or something, just... Let me know because a simple, you know, message from me going, hey, is everything all right, might just be, or not even me, like whether it's a managing editor or another senior editor, just to check in with people because I do I do think it, it can be a very isolating job and as we've seen over the last 12 months, people working from home, it's been, it's been full on. In any given day, you've got a number of crises going around the country and around the world. You've got what's going on in the US, you've got COVID all over the world. You've got challenges in New South Wales. You've probably got a number of politicians ringing to complain about any number of I'm just the complaint stories. Desk. You know, you've got huge changes in the media landscape as well. How do you manage your time? 
Um, not very well. <laughs> it's actually one of my challenges to myself for this year is to be better at stopping and thinking. In fact, it was a former CEO who said to me when I first got the job, this is a thinking job, not a doing job. Now, I found that pretty hilarious at the time because I just was doing so much and it became a bit of a joke for a while amongst my other senior colleagues. But he was absolutely right and I haven't done, I mean, last year we just lurched from bushfires, then a few floods and then straight into the biggest story of our generation in a global pandemic and every person in the newsroom was working on that story um, and we just felt, we were just running. I just felt like I was running all year. And this year, having had a few weeks off, I've come back to work and it's it's a bit of a goal of mine to find a day a week where I'm not like not doing other stuff, but I'm properly setting aside time to think about strategy, to think about where I want us to go, the impact, the areas that I think we need to have greater impact, rethinking my structure. So finding that time, finding that space to be open to moving forward in a more sort of strategic way. And also, I mean, as you know, you just said, like finding the time to be there for people and be properly responsive because, you know, I've had so many meetings in my life where I've felt like I'm not really paying attention to the person that's sitting in front of me and I've maybe missed some big opportunities to help them or encourage them in a certain direction because I've been, you know, the Apple Watch has been beeping and the and the messages are going and you're thinking, oh God, I've got this in five minutes. And so I think just trying to streamline my calendar and my time is, um, and perhaps banking in time at the start and the end of every day to just sort of stop and think, okay, what did I do really well today? And what, what do I need to do better tomorrow? Okay. Maybe daily is not going to happen. Maybe once a week <laughs> to do that. But you are sounding like someone who's now very comfortable in her job. Yeah. Like you're actually comfortable in your skin and in the job. I think so. So you've got time to think because yeah. it's actually not going to fall apart no. if you're not doing it. <laughs> Amazingly. <laughs> um, how do you respond to pressure? Do you suddenly become not very nice or are you always nice or is there <laughs> I what? Did, I what did, do you do? Well, I did act, actually snap a couple of days ago. Um, not at, It wasn't something that the person in front of me had done, but he was relaying me some information. It was a frustrating external thing that is boring. But And I just, I really got annoyed. And I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. I can't understand why it's taking so long. And then I walked away and sort of stormed off. Um, and then send him a message to apologise. <laughs> but I think pressure is something that anyone in my position is just under constantly. I mean, I'm worried about messing up a headline in the paper. I'm nervous that, you know, a big um, investigative story is going to result in a lawsuit. I'm, you know, the things that we juggle are varied. Um, you know, appointing someone into a role, will they do it as well as we hope, you know? I mean, something that I have had to do through this job is find a way to relieve that pressure. So I do exercise. I haven't done much over the summer, but um, I do exercise four or five times a week. I'm really good at getting eight hours sleep and find it if I don't get at least seven, then things start to go pretty haywire. And yeah, just really making time to take a bit of a load off, I think, is is a good way to deal with that because it is pretty constant. It's always there. Other times it peaks and you, I do have a minister screaming down the phone or a journalist furious that their story wasn't the splash or um, whatever particular heightened pressure we're under in a live breaking news story or something. It peaks, of course, and then at the end of that you just sort of want to collapse. But 
you know, for the most part, it's there anyway. So you've got to just find ways to regularly release the pressure valve, I suppose. But snapping, you do snap every now and then. Every now and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, I, I, I just... I just those moments when you snap and you just go, oh, you know, you spend yeah. so you spend so many um, hours hoping people like you yeah. and that you're doing a good job, <laughs> exactly. and then you lose it all in just one. In one for, and, and it's always for me over the most stupid small thing. <laughs> it's never actually someone's big mistake or anything like that. It's always the small stuff. One of the things I um, I'm interested to understand is when you're being yelled at by you've got uh, the chief of staff to the prime minister or the the head of a bank or an advertising client which is threatening to pull out and they're all, you know, throwing everything at you and the phone is just flashing nonstop with these sorts of people with all wanting a piece of you. How do you how do you diffuse those situations? What techniques do you use? So I always try to, well, listen first to what they're saying before I react because I can be, I think, particularly when I'm defensive about something, I can react quite stridently before I necessarily understand what the specific issue is because there's, you know, there's the difference, of course, between someone ringing to say they didn't like something and then something that's wrong. If it's one of the former, so someone just upset about the way they've been portrayed but I, and I could have anticipated that, like we would know that that person is not going to be thrilled about it, I will just try and hear them out and I think always I just try and bring it down, like bring the temperature down because there's absolutely no... You really don't get anywhere um, by screaming at each other. I've had situations where, and yes, it is mostly with men, where they have just continued to make the point over and over and over again and talk to me as though I'm stupid and to say that I'm wrong or we're wrong or the story was wrong. And I know it's not wrong. And I sometimes find there's a real power in standing your ground. And it happened to me quite recently and I had this conversation and this guy just like, he was texting and then he was calling and there was just, and, and no matter how many times I said, well, if you can provide me with X information, then maybe that will change my position. But you haven't. We didn't to the reporter yesterday. You haven't today and I've asked you three times for it. If you can't provide it, then I'm going to stand by the story. And this kept, it kept going. And eventually I just said, well, we are just going to have to agree to disagree. And he was sort of was going on about how, you know, and he just sort of kept it going. But in the end I said, we can't keep having this conversation. So I'm going to hang up now <laughs> and, you know, if, if you want to take it up next week about something else, then please feel free. But I really don't think we're going to have this problem again because I'm not changing the story and, I, and nothing you say to me is going to make me change it. But I did hear him out. I did try to explain his interpretation wasn't a broad interpretation. And, and so you just sort of talk through it to keep it talk, keep talking through it, I think. In terms of the, you know, where I think we have made a mistake or where I'm prepared to concede ground, and I think we probably have over-egged something or it does look a bit um, unfair in that respect, I will always say, look, I hear what you're saying. I need to go back and talk to the reporter and I might get the managing editor involved because she's our sort of, you know, manages all our corrections and complaints and stuff. Then I try to put a lot of stuff in writing because I do think, particularly when there's been a potential legal issue or, or just something that could be quite damaging, it's just important to be clear understand the history of an issue and then act upon it accordingly. And look, if we're wrong, we're wrong. And I'm, you know, we have to admit it. There's no point defending something that we know is not right. So, and often it's a matter of an omission of something that probably should have gone in or, you know, just a bit overexcited in the subbing process or something. So 
you do just have to admit that it was a bit a bit much and we make mistakes and apologise. As I mentioned, there's a lot of young women listening to this and they're going into their first roles. Uh, a lot of these professions are callings. They're 24-7 and we've given up a lot to to do it. Is that still the case for women going into media or can you see that uh, there are changes and that there is respect for a bit more work-life balance? I definitely think there is. I'm probably not the greatest example of that because I I haven't always been able to switch off when I should have. And I love the enthusiasm of young people offering to work their sixth and seventh and eighth day straight without a break. And they they want to they want to be on that story and they want to stay doing it. And I'm never going to say no to that, to be honest. I'm, I'm just not. But we will always then make sure that they get time off and an extended break, not just, you know, a day here or there. And that enthusiasm and passion that, you know, Kate McClymont still works 24-7 and she's been a reporter for 30-odd years. She's always available. I mean, she takes time out for herself, of course. She has holidays, but she's, she's not a, she doesn't clock watch and she doesn't say, oh, well, I worked on this particular day for half a day, so I'm having this extra. You know, she's not like that and that's a lovely example to have. But I'm also really mindful that different people have different levels of responsibilities outside of work, whether it's families or parents to look after or pets or, you know, whatever their, you know, needs and um, and things are. And I, I would just encourage people to really listen to that because, you know, some of these young ones in particular will work and work and work and work, but then I don't want them to burn out either. And I want to keep that, you know, we, we need those people to develop into really excellent senior reporters, not just like gun young ones. So I think it is really about channeling your passion and enthusiasm at the right times, but then also understanding that oh, you know, you worked really hard the last last couple of weeks on a big story, then I'm going to leave it for and for a couple of days and just be on the phone if something happens. So I think finding that balance is hugely important. Well, I would imagine, and one of the things I was going to tell our listeners is that you're about five foot three like I am. And um, I mean, I think I'm quite tall, but I've had to come to terms with the fact <laughs> that I'm not. Yeah. And so, you know, you are a very small in stature um, young woman who has been thrust into a very, very competitive uh, role with a bunch of misfits for staff, uh, and you've done. I love an, them all, <laughs> and you love them all, and you've done an incredible job at the Herald. And you, you know, you've you've come through too. You're now in a a point where you're very comfortable in the job. Uh, the company is in a good place, uh, and the paper under your guidance is in a good place. So, congratulations on the incredible job you're doing. Thank you very much. It's been uh, it's been fun. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson.